Hello everyone and welcome to the lecture on William Wordsworth, who is probably the most famous and influential of all the Romantic poets. In this lecture we'll learn a little about Wordsworth's life before considering his specific contribution to the Romantic movement and modern culture more generally. Wordsworth was born in 1770 in Cockermouth in the northwest of England in an area that's known as the Lake District. Wordsworth's association with this era is so strong that his contemporaries called Wordsworth and his associates, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey, the Lake School of Poets. Wordsworth's presence in this area also established the Lake District as a tourist destination, which it remains to this day, thanks in no small part to Wordsworth. His upbringing was relatively modest. Nonetheless, he was able to attend Cambridge University and in 1791 travel to France for a year, when the revolution was in full swing. Like many young romantic poets, Wordsworth was initially at least an enthusiastic supporter of the French Revolution. And while he did become increasingly troubled by its violence, he nonetheless retained a sympathy for its democratic aims. In 1795, an inheritance allowed Wordsworth to live independently, and he set up a house with his beloved sister Dorothy. They first met Coleridge in 1795, and the three became very close, to the extent that Dorothy and William moved to Alfoxton House in Somerset to be close to Coleridge. When William and Dorothy moved permanently back to the Lake District in 1799, Coleridge followed them the following year. Wordsworth's friendship with Coleridge produced one of the most important and influential literary collaborations written in English, their joint collection of poems, The Lyrical Ballads, which was first published in 1798. If we want to understand the characteristics of literary romanticism, we can do worse than begin by simply considering the title of this groundbreaking poetry collection. So let's take a moment to unpick it. Lyrical is, of course, the adjectival form of the word lyric. But what's a lyric? If we turn to the literary terminology at the back of the Norton, we'll discover it's a short poetic form without restriction of metre in which the expression of personal emotion, often by a voice in the first person, is given primacy. It's also originally a classical Greek form. This adjective thus points to two key features of romantic poetry. First, the lyric poem's characteristic use of the first person suggests that romantic poetry has the same emphasis on the individual that we encountered last week in our discussion of romantic era politics. Secondly, the lyric poem's expression of personal emotion confirms literary romanticism's decisive rejection of neoclassicism's emphasis on reason. When we put these characteristics together, we see that lyric poems are not about capturing an objective reality. Importantly, instead, they are meditations on the subjective experience of an individual. We've already, of course, begun to see this shift in Gray's Elegy, which is a much more contemplative and emotionally driven work than the poems of Dryden Swift, Pope or Montague. And if this emphasis on individual feeling doesn't sound groundbreaking to us, is because it's what we have come to expect poetry to do, and that is part of the legacy of Romanticism. It continues to shape our relationship with poetry to this very day. But it's important to recognise that in the late 18th century, the Romantic privileging of the lyric is a radical or a revolutionary move. Before the Romantics, lyric poetry was considered a minor, unimportant genre, and the lyric speaker was treated as a poetic convention. 
In contrast, the Romantics not only placed lyric poetry and subjective experience at the heart of any poetic enterprise, but the lyric speaker, the I of Romantic poetry, is more than a poetic invention. The experiences and emotions of the speaker of Romantic lyrics are often very closely aligned to the poet themselves. If you want to get a sense of just how seriously the Romantics took individual subjectivity, take a look at the prelude, Wordsworth's autobiography in verse, which is written on an epic scale. Let's turn now to the second word in the title of this collection, ballad. A ballad is a simple narrative song or a narrative poem suitable for singing, which is usually written in short stanzas. It's an ancient genre associated with oral folk traditions. In reviving the ballad, Wordsworth and Coleridge do two things. Firstly, like Blake, they signal their rejection of neoclassicism's privileging of classical Greek and Roman genres in favour of a return to an older indigenous British poetic form. Secondly, by celebrating the ballad, Wordsworth and Coleridge also elevate the language and culture of the lower classes. Indeed, when the first edition of the Lyrical Ballads was published in 1798, Wordsworth even suggested in an advertisement that these poems were, quote, to be considered experiments to assess how far the language of conversation in the middle and lower classes of society is adapted to the purposes of poetic pleasure. In other words, Romantic poetry not only shares an emphasis on the individual with Romantic era politics, it also shares its democratising impulse. The lyrical ballads were enormously popular and quickly ran to a second and third edition. The second edition was accompanied by a preface in which Wordsworth laid out his manifesto for poetry. He developed and expanded that manifesto in the third edition, which was published in 1802, and that's the version of the preface that you are reading. Wordsworth's preface is important for a number of reasons. It not only lays out the principles that underpin romantic poetry, it is also an influential early piece of literary criticism. More broadly, it also sets up an opposition between literature and modern society that remains with us today. So amongst other things, the preface bemoans what Wordsworth sees as the coarsening effects of industrialization and urbanization. He claims that a multitude of causes unknown to former times are now acting with a combined force to blunt the discriminating powers of the mind, to reduce it to a state of almost savage torpor. For Wordsworth, the cure for this worrying loss of sensitivity is good poetry, which he believes will teach us how to feel again without the need for gross and violent stimulants. Here we can draw analogies with modern day concerns, prevalent anxieties that video games and social media desensitise us, leading us, especially the young, to seek more and more extreme forms of entertainment. On the discussion board this week, we are going to unpick the preface. We're going to think about the qualities that Wordsworth associates with good poetry and how he sees it reviving feeling in these jaded city dwellers. We're going to think about how he characterises the poet. And we're also going to look at the extent to which poems like I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud or Coleridge's Frost at Midnight embody the poetic principles set out in the preface. Thanks for listening. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Hello and welcome to the lecture on Dorothy Wordsworth. For a long time, attention to Romantic era writers was confined to the so-called Big Six. William Blake, William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Percy Bysshe Shelley, John Keats and Lord Byron. 
In recent decades, however, critics and scholars have begun to expand the Romantic canon to include other authors, most notably women writers of the period, such as Anna Letitia Barbold, Mary Robinson, Charlotte Smith, and our focus, Dorothy Wordsworth. Born only 21 months after her brother, Dorothy spent little time with William growing up. After their mother died in 1778, Dorothy was sent to live with relatives, and until she was 23, she scarcely saw her four brothers. She was reunited with William in 1794, and in 1795, an inheritance allowed them to live together, and they did so for the rest of their lives. Dorothy continued to live with her brother even after his marriage, serving as his housekeeper, his helpmeet, and secretary. She would often write down the poems that Wordsworth had composed in his head. Like her brother, Dorothy became a close friend of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and she served as her constant companion through the writing of the lyrical ballads. William presents the poet as a solitary, self-sufficient individual in the preface to the lyrical ballads. But Dorothy's journals reveal quite how collaborative her brother's poetry and Coleridge's was. We'll see phrases crop up in Dorothy's journals that later appear in her brother's and in Coleridge's poetry. In other words, we should recognise Dorothy as an important influence on the lives and work of both of these men. Dorothy herself never published during her lifetime, though some of her tra travel journals were circulated amongst her friends. Unlike her travel journals, the L. Foxton and Grasmere journals were never intended to circulate outside the immediate family. Extracts from the journals were first published after William's death, but early editors like William Knight removed what they saw as trivial details, such as records of illnesses, boils, bowel problems, snoring, sleeplessness, and some references to encounters with the poor. If we're interested in what life was actually like in the early 19th century, these might seem like the most intriguing passages in the journals. Such detail has now been restored to the Grasmere Journal, but not to the L. Foxton Journal, as the original manuscript is lost. Rather than reading Dor Dorothy's journals simply to gain insight of William Wordsworth, however, readers are now much more likely to read them for their own merits. Dorothy is as effective an observer of the natural world as William, and we can gain much pleasure from her account, though her observations of nature are slightly different from William's. You'll note that unlike William, who tends to put himself at the centre of his poetry, Dorothy actually often elides the eye in her descriptions of the natural world. Indeed, she often assumes a subordinate position in the journal more generally. It's clear she's often writing the journal for her beloved William and not for herself. As Dorothy writes, I shall give William pleasure by it, the journal, when he comes home again. There's been much speculation about the relationship of these two siblings, which often seems unusually intense to readers. I'm not sure too many of us have been as reluctant as Dorothy to throw away our brother or sister's bit in apple core, for example. This week we're going to explore Dorothy's influence on William by comparing their description of discovering a crowd, a host of golden daffodils on the banks of Ullswater in 1802. Dorothy recorded the experience almost immediately in her journal, but William did not write the poem based on this event, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, until two years later, after, we think, refreshing his memory by reading Dorothy's journals. As you read the two pieces together, you'll want to consider how Dorothy's journal helps us understand William's poem, and vice versa.
It's also worth thinking about how Dorothy's journal disrupts romantic notions of authorship by revealing the collaborative process at the heart of Wordsworth's poetry. All right, thank you for listening. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to the lecture on Samuel Taylor Coleridge. We'll begin by considering Coleridge's life before exploring his poem, Frost at Midnight. Coleridge was born in Devon in 1772. Devon is a rural county in the southwest of England. However, Coleridge was sent to school in London at the age of eight after his father died, an experience that he describes in the second stanza of Frost at Midnight. Like Wordsworth, Coleridge was attracted to radical politics as a young man. In 1794, he planned to emigrate to America with his friend and fellow Lake School poet Robert Southey. There, they hoped to set up what Coleridge called a pantosocracy, a utopian community built on democratic principles. The plans collapsed, however, but Coleridge ended up marrying Sarah Fricker, the woman he had planned to take to the United States anyway. This marriage was despite his own misgivings about the relationship. Coleridge met Wordsworth in 1795 and an intense friendship developed immediately. Coleridge had recognised Wordsworth's poetic ability even before he met him, calling him the best poet of the age. He was, of course, Wordsworth's collaborator on the Lyrical Ballads, published in 1798, while Wordsworth himself addresses his epic autobiographical poem, The Prelude, to Coleridge. Coleridge was an extraordinary talented individual. He was a polymath. He wrote in many different fields, including poetry, philosophy, literary criticism, journalism, and he was able to read Latin, Greek, German, Italian, French, Spanish and Portuguese. But like many precocious, wide-ranging intellects, he never quite seemed to fulfil his potential. He suffered ill health all his life, which led to an addiction to laudanum. And if you're not familiar with laudanum, I can reveal that it's opium dissolved in alcohol. It was frequently prescribed for a variety of ailments in this period, but it was highly addictive. Coleridge did eventually get his addiction under control, but he never kicked the habit, and this addiction hindered his composition. He was also often short of money, and he took up many writing projects, journalism, lectures, translations, simply to try to make ends meet. Not only are some of these commissioned works marred by plagiarism, but this paid writing often also disrupted Coleridge's own major writing projects. Despite these factors, however, Coleridge is nonetheless an important figure in the history of English literature. His Biographia Literaria, for example, which is part autobiography and part literary criticism, is a seminal work in the development of English studies. Just as importantly, Coleridge also initiates and represents a school of thought that will stand in opposition to the commercial, market-driven values of the 19th century. While utilitarian philosophers of the period, like Jeremy Bentham, argue that people's choices and decisions are easily anticipated, Coleridge warns against philosophical systems that treat human beings like machines and that discount emotion. The utilitarians dismiss imaginative writing as fundamentally useless. Bentham, for example, compares poetry to pushpin, which was a child's game. But Coleridge argues that art and literature, because of their engagement with feeling, have the power to restore and maintain social bonds damaged by industrialization. The poem that we're reading, Frost at Midnight, is part of Coleridge's series of conversation poems. These are poems written in blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter, 
which address his friends, sometimes including Wordsworth. This particular poem, however, is addressed to Coleridge's infant son, Hartley. And it's an example of a romantic poem in which it's easy to elide the speaker with the poet themselves. The poem is set in Coleridge's cottage at Nether Stowey and it draws on elements from his biography, such as the description of his school days in stanza two. The poem was written in 1798 and though it wasn't included in the lyrical ballads, this poem is nonetheless highly characteristic of romantic poetry. It focuses on the speaker's subjective experience of nature and it connects nature to the divine. It presents urban life as fundamentally corrupting. Unlike his son, the speaker was raised in the great city, pent mid cloisters dim, and as a consequence he feels out of harmony with nature, excluded from the peace around him. The speaker's sympathies are not with the Frost's secret ministry, but with the film, the piece of soot that flutters on the grate of his fireplace. We can also connect this poem specifically to Wordsworth's arguments in the preface. And it's these connections that I'm going to let you make yourself on the discussion board this week. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Bye bye.